Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Carrie Thomas from Dolby Music. First of all, you may be wondering, how do TikTok royalties actually work? Well, it's a very interesting thing because TikTok royalties are way different than any other streaming service. For instance, they're not based on views. They're actually based on the number of videos that were created with your music. So, in other words, you get a lot more money if a thousand people use your music in a video than if you get a thousand or even ten thousand or even a million views on just one. Then the other thing is, you do get paid more for a 50 second video than a 15 second video. So, how much do you get paid? Well, it's about three cents per video or about $300 per 10,000 videos. The fact of the matter is, you have to get all of these people to actually make videos with your music. 10,000 seems like a whole lot for that to happen. There's yet another piece of this puzzle. You can't upload your songs directly to TikTok. Oh, you can, but you won't get paid. It has to go through some sort of a distributor like TuneCore or CD Baby or DistroKid or any of those. So then the next question is, what happens when my music gets up there and somebody uses it for a video and how does it take off? How does it go viral? Well, once the video is uploaded, TikTok shows it to a small number of users in between already popular videos. And the reason for that is they don't want the users to get bored. Then the algorithm measures how much your video is actually watched, as well as how many likes and comments and shares and downloads it receives. It seems like the ratio is something like one like for every 10 views in order to trigger the algorithm to show the video to a lot more people. The algorithm then is triggered by the velocity of engagement it receives. In other words, if it suddenly receives 20% more likes in a single day, then the video is going to be pushed out to a lot more people as a result. That's why it seems that views come in big waves. It's because of the way the algorithm works. TikTok is over a billion users and was downloaded more than even Instagram last year. That means there's a good possibility that your video might be seen by a lot of people or even go viral in some small way. So it might be time to check out TikTok if you haven't already. These are some of the basics that you have to know to get paid and to actually take advantage of the algorithm but you have to be on it for that to happen. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on audio mixing, production, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Along with what makes a song a hit, and Q&A and advice sessions every month. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now there's a big question that musical instrument and audio manufacturers are asking, and that's what's going to happen to the business post-COVID? 2021 was the biggest sales year ever for guitars. Almost 4 million were sold. Recording interfaces were up 40%, and keyboards probably would have set a record as well if it wasn't for chip shortages. But what happens now? Many of the guitars that were sold, for instance, were entry-level beginner guitars, 
And it's been pretty well documented that somewhere between 70 and 90% of new players quit within one year. So that probably means that this year, next year, entry-level instrument sales are going to go way down. But history tells us that we've seen this all before. During the Beatle era, post-1964 and then again in the 1990s, there were huge spikes in interest in the guitar, for instance, and turned out it was pretty short-lived. That said, it expanded the universe of musicians and it fueled growth in musical instrument sales and accessories and new instruments and premium instruments for about another decade. I think what's even more daunting, though, is the fact that COVID has resulted in the birth rate going way down. Now, birth rates were already running below replacement rate for the last eight years or so, but they fell off a cliff since 2020. This is pretty worrisome because it means that the 12 to 30-year-old demographic is going to shrink by a lot. That's traditionally been the source of around 50% of musical instrument sales. But you have the other big disruptor, and that's video games, which are really taking their toll because there's no time left to practice. So the next couple of years should be really interesting. Like I say, musical instrument manufacturers really had great years through COVID. Let's see what happens as we go through the next couple of years. It's certainly not going to be the same. My guest this week is Kerry Thomas, who's responsible for content and studio enablement for Dolby Music. He works with engineers, studios, and record labels to ensure that they can create music using Dolby's Atmos technology. After 15 years in a film and television industry of companies like Dane Tracks, Todd Deluxe, and 24-7 Sound, Kerry started as an applications engineer in virtual reality at Dolby. He then made the jump to working with Atmos in 2015, so he has vast experience on the subject. During the interview, we spoke about how to get into Atmos mixing, the vast number of devices that are Atmos capable, Dolby Room Tuning, what makes a great immersive mix, and much more. I spoke with Carrie from his office in Burbank. Let's start with how you got started. Uh, well, as with anything, it started with a girl. Um, and uh, she needed a drummer in her band, and uh, so I decided to do that. And then... Uh, couple of months later, they needed a website. And so I learned how to do HTML web programming and uh, web applications and things like that. And uh, that caught my interest. So I, I went off to, uh, to university in, uh, in, in Brunel in, uh, in Uxbridge in the UK and uh, studied internet engineering and uh, realized very, very quickly at that point that there was nothing that they were teaching me that couldn't be learned online, uh, you know, frankly, much, much quicker. So I switched to doing a course called Creative Music Technology, and that had a third-year placement option. So for my third year, I actually joined a company called Soundlux London, um, and uh, they were doing post-production for feature films. So I kind of ventured away from the music side at that point, um, but my break in the company came when I was uh, walking through a meeting that was happening in the lobby where the creative department from Kingdom of Heaven um, uh, per Halberg and uh, uh, Carol and uh, Rich um, uh, Richard Fordham were having a meeting with our IT department from Asset Media. 
And uh, they were talking about this virtual private network that needed to happen between Soho and Shepperton Studios, where Mike Minkler and Myron Nettingo were going to be mixing the movie. And so uh, it was a, a, a very funny conversation where nobody had a clue what was going on. Um, <laughs> the, the, the IT department didn't know what these guys were trying to achieve, and these guys had no idea what the IT department was saying to them. So uh, I... I I chimed up with uh, with Richard after the after the meeting and went, "Hey, so uh, I can explain that to you if you uh, if you want." He went, "Really?" I was like, "Yeah, I studied in internet engineering." He went, "Oh, okay, great." I became technical uh, <laughs> technical advisor. <laughs> so, uh, in, in the interest of knowing the thing that people don't know, that's how I got started in the industry was uh, internet engineering for uh, uh, for a sound post production company, and it all from there. <laughs> Did you transfer then over to Los Angeles with Todd Sandalux? Yeah. So, um, you know, long story short, um, Sandalux London got closed um, uh, in 2010. Um, and uh, I came out, I'd already booked my trip in April to come out to NAB um, in Las Vegas. So even though the company closed, I made that trip out. And then a volcano exploded in Iceland. Um, and we couldn't leave. So uh, in, we, we rerouted our trip um, and came down to Los Angeles where I, uh, I was introduced to a bunch of um, uh, studios. Uh, so I met with uh, Scott Hecker over at Universal and uh, uh, various other folks, and then Dane Davis at Dane Tracks. You know, cut forward seven, eight months. Um, I, was, uh, I was stood in a pond in Hampshire fitting a child safety guard. And I got a call from Anne-Marie Wackle. And uh, she said, hey, you want to come work in Los Angeles? So I transitioned over to uh, to actually work with Danetrax. And uh, it was a time when um, HD workflows were coming into post-production. So there was this 23976-48048 thing. Um, and we'd had a bit of an adventure with it on Green Zone. So uh, I fixed, fixed a bunch of problems with that. And then... Um, Went to work for Todd A.O. Um, as, as, a, as a trainee um, mix tech. Um, and uh, so was uh, was working at Todd A.O. as Atmos was uh, being uh, introduced to the community. Um, and uh, so was, was given a lot of uh, lot of support in, in learning what that was. Um, and uh, you know, working with folks like Mike Minkler on, you know, how, what, what those workflows were going to be. And then... When Todd Sandlux closed, I went to work for Wiley Stateman's new company, um, 24-7 Sound. Um, Wiley was looking at uh, doing things a little different in post-production, um, more remote uh, site workflows. So I had uh, effects uh, designers in Oxnard and Castaic and uh, down in Redondo Beach. And we're all working on the same projects at this centralized, uh, cent- very, very small centralized facility. Uh, so developing some workflows there. Then Atmos was introduced to the conversation. I, I built a Dolby Atmos mix stage in, uh, in, in, in one of the rooms up there. It was the world's first naturally lit Dolby Atmos mix stage. And uh, two days later, Dolby called and offered me a job. And uh, that was doing virtual reality. So that's how I got into, uh, into Dolby. So, uh, so when you got into virtual reality at Dolby, was that strictly about immersive audio? Yeah. Um, so it was a, you know, obviously you know, virtual reality back in 2015 was kind of the emerging thing. It was, you know, the next hot thing, you know, we're coming back into that uh, right now. Right. So, uh, 
you know, we, we, we've gone through the, uh, the zone of disillusionment, um, as, uh, <laughs> as, as, as John from Unity called it. But we were, we were looking at you know, what Dolby Atmos could add to, um, to the virtual uh, reality experiences and largely focused on 360 video. Now, the, uh, the cool thing about Atmos is you know, it's object-based audio. It's you know, the, the HRTF functionality for the binaural was all kind of kicking off. Um, and uh, so we were, we, we were able to lean on a bunch of uh, very um, you know, engaged creators now, it wasn't the right time for a premium audio format to be in virtual reality when the visuals were, were, were challenging. Uh, it, it gave us an awful lot of uh, flexibility and leeway to do something that was perhaps really interesting. So from that, created the Dolby Atmos production suite, and you know, we, we improved the binaural rendering that was, uh, was happening um, with uh, with with. A, a deep engagement with uh, Nathaniel Kunkel at that time um, to uh, kind of be our, be our magic ears on that and uh, you know, the, the wonderful makeness. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it was a great time to be driving that forward. And uh, even though it didn't end, end up going anywhere, um, we, we got a lot out of it. So, uh, so then Dolby Music then is relatively new. Yeah. Um, so when we closed down virtual reality in 2017, I think. Mm. <laughs> Time flies, um, I know. Yeah, it, it, was, uh, it, it was right after my daughter's first birthday, and I joined the team um, to, uh, to work alongside Nate, um, and uh, then he left. Um, <laughs> I think it was something I said. Um, but yeah, 2017 was when that transition happened. Um, and at that point... Capitals uh, room had already been installed. Uh, Abbey Road had been used to mix the uh, Sergeant Pepper album. And there were a, a bunch of other projects that had kind of happened. Uh, Eagle Rock had been prolific in their studio, uh, in, their, in their live concert uh, post-production. Um, so things like, you know, Imagine Dragons live from Toronto and Hans Zimmer shows were all in Atmos on Eagle Rock. So there's a sort of nebulous start to Dolby Atmos music. And, you know, I think as, as long as anybody's had Atmos tools, they've been playing with music in it. But yeah, that was really the kind of transition point was, okay, how are we going to really get this done and how are we going to scale? And, you know, at that time, you know, there was, there were, you know, three, yeah, three dedicated Atmos music groups in the world. Capital Studios, Abbey Road Mix Room, and a, a private studio in San Rafael. We just crossed 416 uh, music studios uh, this this week, which has really been what we've uh, you know, been been scaling out. So whether that's production suite based or mastering suite based integrations into the the workstations, as as music outlets have come online, the music creators have uh, really you know, grabbed hold of it, and then the, the music manufacturers have gone, "Hey, we need to support." You know our our users in how how this stuff gets created. So um, yeah, from from those kind of small small beginnings, we're uh, we're, we're now you know developing all these workflows and uh, work, work, working with the industry. So exciting. One of the things that I've noticed that I think really helps distribute this is the fact that Dolby Production Suite is fairly inexpensive and there's a nice long trial period, so it makes it easy to get into. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's now ninety day uh, free trial, 
which you know gives gives people enough time to download, figure out what on earth this new thing is, um, and um, you know then start asking uh, asking the good questions. We also have the the, the learning.dolby.com curriculum, which, which is helps, great. It's great help people in as well. So. Yeah, I mean, pr- production suite was really one one of those things that uh, triggered a lot of growth and opportunities, and the fact that it's exactly the same software then that then you know, you can scale up, right? You take that same installer, put it on uh, another machine, and have a, a, a mastering suite authorization, and you're kind of good to go with uh, with the next next phase in your development. So uh, yeah, it's been uh, we've been really useful. I think the one thing that may be holding this back is there's a perception that it's very expensive to get into. And if you look at it from a hardware standpoint, it is. But that doesn't mean that that's where you have to start, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one of the things that you know we, we've definitely seen over the course of the last two or three years as well is much more flexible workflows, right? So when... <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but it's been one of the benefits of the pandemic is you know forcing people to think outside of that box, right? And figuring out a new way of doing things that they you know they they need to deliver this content. So how are we going to do it? Um, so we've seen you know headphone first workflows um, where you're mixing on uh, on on, on your, your regular studio headphones, setting those binaural modes, um, and then maybe going into a studio to check that you know it's it's representing on their speaker setup uh obviously that's been challenging with lockdowns and things as well but it's it's happening and happened the other thing is the consumer playback mechanisms that that, that are available and we've seen great adoption of uh consumer devices into the home environment right so with netflix apple tv plus and, you know all of the other um, uh, services that are sending premium content to the, uh, to the to the home, people again have invested in home theater systems, and whether that's a sound bar or um, you know an upward firing speaker system, they want to see their content and experience their audiovisual content in Atmos and Dolby Vision. But that means that once you've created your your mix, maybe in headphones, you get an MP4 file and you can load it onto those consumer devices, and it will play decoded. So even if you're not able to get into those studio environments, it's a mechanism to check, check and test your content for at least some level of translation to uh, to, to ensure success. So uh, yeah, it's it, it's been a challenge, but we're uh, we're definitely getting there. One of the things that surprises me is I thought there would be a greater adoption of uh, on the consumer level. I know it's there and I know it's growing, but it seems to be under the radar, so to speak. And I look at it and I think, well, a lot of it has to do with the way CES shows have gone, you know, during the pandemic, where there, there hasn't been a, a way to roll things out. Is that true, or is it just kind of slowly building steam? You know, I think um, you know, a, a large portion of it is that Atmos has been in the market for a long time, right? And um, you know, back to 2014 when Blu-rays started making their way into into the home environment. You know, we saw adoption from the the consumer manufacturers, and that's continued. And unfortunately, in many cases, it's continued kind of under the radar, right? So it's been that oh, this new soundbar comes out, and Dolby Atmos is a badge that comes on it, but it's not you know like hey, you're now in Dolby Atmos. 
and uh, very similar with uh, with the mobile devices and, and things like that. So Android de- has been decoding Dolby Atmos for four years now, and it's kind of again one of those just sort of undocumented feature sets. Um, you know, the fact that it's available in Xbox is one of the things that if you look for it, you know it's there. But if you don't, you may not. So Dolby Atmos has been in billions of, is in billions of devices now. And, um, you know, whether that's a cell phone or a laptop, um, you know, I'm talking to you on a MacBook Pro, um, that's Dolby Atmos enabled. Um, your iPad is Dolby Atmos enabled. Your iPhone is Dolby Atmos enabled. But you don't necessarily uh, know that it's, it's there. So cha- changing that mindset of, of consumers is, uh, is one of those things that people go, oh, I can actually do this, right? Yeah. The, Echo Stu- the Echo Studio was the first device that played Dolby Atmos without being attached to a screen. And that was a really cool um, uh, device to be, uh, to be coming into market. It's often misphrased as this was the first device to play Dolby Atmos. It wasn't. It was the first device without a screen to play Atmos and uh, that was very much music focused. You just mentioned the, the Apple devices, and I have them all myself. But the interesting thing is that Apple does, even though it will deliver uh, immersive audio, they use their own codec. They don't use the Dolby Atmos codec, and as a result, you get a different mix. Uh, they they do use the Dolby Atmos codec. Um, so what they don't do is use the Dolby Atmos virtualizer. So uh, when you're delivering a Dolby Atmos mix, it's coming in as Dolby Digital plus Jock. Right, which is the unsexy name for EC3 and you know, next generation AC3, all of that stuff. Uh, that is a speaker-based codec. So that's taking all of your uh, all of your object data, all of your bed data, putting it into um, the, the the Dolby Dolby Digital Bitstream, and uh, then that's what Apple are decoding in their service, or rather decoding on their devices. So if you are playing Apple Music uh, on a home theater system, you're actually getting Dolby Atmos. You're not getting spatial audio. It's decoding on the device, which is a Dolby Atmos-enabled device. The, the sort of spatial audio um, of, for the headphone side of it, that's Apple's virtualizer of a 714 speaker environment. So they're decoding Dolby Atmos into their virtual environment, which is 714-based, and then from there, creating their own binaural virtualized experience um, of uh, of that sound field. Now, it's 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 certainly not one to one. It's uh, you know it it can be very very close. Um, and if you were to follow our kind of best practices and you know work with Dolby to tune your rooms and uh, all of those sort of things, you can get really close to that in studio experience in in spatial audio. Um, but it's definitely not without its bumps. Well, let's go there for a second. You just men- mentioned tuning rooms, and I sent you an email about certification the other day. Yes. Uh, and what prompted that is on my private Facebook group, someone began talking about putting an immersive room in, an Atmos room, and then the conversation went to, well, you need at least a million dollars to do this. <laughs> so I said, wait, 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 it's not, and I said, well, the Derb- Dolby certification and everything, and which is why I reached out to you to, so I could yeah. come back and say, well, yeah, but that's not the case. But there was a point in time where there was a certification, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Dolby certification has been a thing for a while in in various different uh, outlets, right? So predominantly it started uh, with the theatrical side of things, right? In in 5171 world in in the UK, in Europe, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, various other parts of the world, you were able to get a Dolby Premiere certificate for your studio and... Then it became a Dolby Atmos certificate for your studio and a Dolby Atmos Premiere certificate for your studio. Uh, here in the US, that never happened, right? The, the theatrical rooms uh, were never certified in, in that regard. What happened when uh, the home entertainment platforms started taking off was that you know, companies like Netflix, um, Amazon, uh, Apple uh, TV wanted to have rooms that they could trust to work in. So the home entertainment certification was the first certification program to roll out in the US ever. Um, and um, that was a worldwide program. The goal there was to kind of provide consistency for the OTT services so that they knew that the engineer had, you know, uh, uh, if they had a projector, it was a un, un, unaffected path. If they had a, um, uh, an LED or an LCD screen in their in their room that it was set up in in a way that was not going to affect the sound. They had a certain number of faders and you know all of the things that were part of that, and you know it it was it was a successful program, right? That was a paid for program. Unfortunately, by the time it rolled out, Netflix actually put in their delivery spec that Dolby Atmos certification was not needed for do, do, doing a Netflix program. It's like. Thanks, guys. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so uh, certainly when it came to music, I personally took a very strong line on it. And um, you know, my, my, my manager, Christine, you know, certainly was supportive of it in that you can't certify a music studio, right? Just following a set of parameters means absolutely nothing in, in, in the grand scheme of things doesn't mean you can mix Atmos. It doesn't mean that your mixer is trained for Atmos. It means that you've put things in the right places. So having a certification for music makes no sense whatsoever. So we would, and I would, rather have worked with the engineers to make sure that they knew what the requirements were, what the guidelines were. Because if we do that, we can help educate and have a more in-depth conversation with with you about it, right? So I, I've i got my live room. I want to have that in, in integrated. Well, turns out you would fail certification because you had a live room with a window and it makes no sense. But I can enable your studio and I can onboard your studio as something that is known about, trusted, and that we've worked with you to make sure that we're in, uh, in good shape. Um, so that's what we do. We have an onboarding process. And we have a best practices document so that you can download it uh, for free from the website. You can uh, go through and say, hey, actually, you know, can I make it work with this? And then the answer is almost certainly yes, but here's the caveats, right? So can I do Dolby Atmos production suite and use Dolby Audio Bridge? Yeah, you could be listed on our website with that, but you're going to have to be aware of these challenges in workflow. You're not going to have the ability to overdub. You're not going to have the ability to use DSP plugins. You won't be able to record you know, anything into that session. So as long as you're aware of that, 
and the fact it's going to take you more time should that um, uh, should that avenue come up. Technically, there's no reason why you can't. And certainly during um, during the last couple of years, we've been more flexible on those things, and the market's adopted. So Grace Designs, when I saw Michael at uh, at NAM 2020. You know, we were having this conversation about the number of filters that were needed in the in the speaker domain, and uh, he said, "You know, the FPGAs you know, you know limits the amount that we can do at 192k." I was like, "Right, but I don't care about 192k. Most I care about for Atmos right now is six is 96k." And he went, "Oh, great! We can do so much more with that." And so they updated the firmware, and we're 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 in a place where this great unit is able to do that. With the Matrix Studio, we've got that same uh, kind of uh, functionality. So the kind of certification makes no sense to me still, but the ability to work with a music engineer and say, hey, look, you know, this is the reason that we've, it, we've said this. All right, 914 versus 714 is good because it allows you to fill in that gap of the headphones. But if you don't want to have that, you don't need to have it. It's just a... Um, it's it's going to help you to get your content out into the world. You just mentioned 96K. You're talking session-wise 96K because delivery is 48K. Delivery is 48K. So the ADM uh, that gets delivered to the encoders um, is 48K, 24-bit. Um, the renderer will actually allow you to record a master file at 96K. So you can work in your in your session at 96k, create your Pro Tools stems, your, your Nuendo stems, whatever at 96k, and actually print into the renderer with as a Dolby Audio, Dolby Atmos master file, DAMF um, at 96k. That 96k then has to be converted to 48 for the ADM delivery. But a lot of the music services, a lot of the labels will also ask for a 96 if it's been recorded that way, right? And that's the key is if you have recorded the, the, the master file at 96, you can deliver a 96K DAMF for archiving, for future use, for Blu-ray distribution, uh, which will support 96K into the, uh, into the Dolby um, uh, True HD codec that is uh, on, on Blu-rays. Um, it's only for streaming that that 48K uh, ADMB wave becomes the, the, the limiting uh, limiting factor. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm glad we talked. Uh, <laughs> but, but, there's a lot of, yeah. oh yeah, if this, then that, that goes on with this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's great to, to, to be able to have this conversation. So thank you. You mentioned room tuning before. So what does that entail exactly? So, um, it's a, it's a service that Dolby offer. And um, we'll we'll send a Dolby engineer out to uh, to your, your your room and measure the frequency uh, uh, and amplitude response of your speakers in your room at mixed position and the RT times and all of the things that that that, that need to be considered. And then we're going to do time alignment. Uh, we're going to uh, we have a music target curve. Uh, which has definitely got some uh, uh, so, some some interesting uh, uh, comments about it, but um, the target curve is really actually not dissimilar or not far away from what actually was happening in music rooms anyway. People just didn't know it. That's been really interesting to see. So uh, we're actually going through um, sort of retroactive uh, research on it, 
but the the music curve was really discovered. It was not created, right? We didn't take the X curve and go, hey, this seems like a good idea. We're going to throw that in the room. It was actually, you know, working with the engineers at some of the recording studios to understand what was going on in their rooms. As you, as, as the research will kind of show, we've actually made the rooms more flat and more consistent. Um, uh, but it's it's definitely uh, uh, it's definitely hitting the industry in, tr- in an interesting way. So uh, yeah, I look forward look forward to publishing that. <laughs> I have a, a story for you. When I first got to Los Angeles in 1980, I guess it was, I became friends with uh, Steve Brandon, Coco Brandon, who was the kind of premier room tuner around town. And of course, he learned from George Augsburg, who kind of came up with the idea. And they used to do it on an old white test set with you know, white passive third octave EQs and everything. But one of the things I remember is that he had multiple curves and he would show me and he said, okay, if this is an R&B room, I tune it like this. If it's a rock room, I tune it like this. If it's a pop room, I tune it like this. So it goes way back then, actually, when, you know, he was tuning for the particular music that they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, we, we definitely see that still. And, you know, obviously the, the, the work that he did is, is phenomenal. Right. And, you know, George before him and it, it's, it's kind of testament to that, that we go to go, okay, what actually is happening in these rooms? And those rooms were developed, you know, as, as you, as you say, right. The, the rock room needed to be this, the R and B room needs to be that. Well, we're not in a world right now where we have that massive differentiation, right? Rooms do the job that they're hired for these days. Um, and so while there are those specialized rooms, we also see that, you know, somebody may be on an indie, uh, indie project one day and a hip-hop project the next day. So the, uh, the, the, the sort of target curve, you know, while it doesn't necessarily accommodate for all of those differentiations, gives us a, a, a good um, uh, you know, fr- frequency response across the, uh, across the range um, and also makes it more consistent and more like a, more like a flat, not flat room. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, you know, confusion in the marketplace about what that flat means, right? Nobody's room is tuned flat. Um, it's, it's a flattened, but it's not, it's not horizontal. It's to something. Um, and so as we, as we kind of got into that, it was like, oh, yeah, we're actually not doing things that are crazy dissimilar from, uh, fr- from the rest of the world. We're just formalizing it. Makes sense. Okay. If someone is, uh, has a stereo room and they decide that they want to go Atmos, so... Besides the speakers and besides the the extra gear that you need, what does that entail acoustically? Do things change? Yeah, so certainly there's there's less focus on that kind of you know, live and dead end uh, work. Um, you know, we see uh, you know a, a lot of the the sort of um, blanking on the name uh, zero acoustic uh, um, uh, rooms coming to more prevalence um, and, uh, and, and various things. In order for, in, in my personal opinion, I feel like having the same speaker all the way around, the same equidistance, the, you know, the same ability to 
generate sound from those locations of the room and consequently have the complementary answer to it on the other side or you know, front back is where immersive music rooms need to be going. It needs to be less about here's my stereo and how I'm going to fit Atmos into it. Now, that's not to say you can't fit Atmos into a stereo room. It's just there are considerations. And some of that can be done with tuning, but more often than not, it's to do with them creating, you know, it might be a, a base array to excite the room from the rear as well as from the front if there's an awful lot of bass trapping at the back or, you know, some of those things. You know, you're, you're, you're probably very familiar with the, uh, uh, the Blackbird Studio C picture, right? That was an interesting one. Frankly, I was terrified, right? <laughs> John called me and went, hey, I'm going to do Atmos. And it's going to be in Studio C. Deep breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of panicness, right? So came up with a plan for what that was going to be. Um, and the, the, the team at Trans Audio were fantastic. Uh, ben Lilly from ATC flew over from the UK back when we could fly over from the UK. And uh, we were... Uh, we. We, we got to spend a whole kind of week putting that, uh, that room together and figuring out how that was going to work. And one of the things that's special about that room is the, is, is the, the low-end response. <laughs> All of the diffusions uh, and, and, and things that are going on in there, it's, it's magical and troublesome all at the same time. So what that kind of highlighted is that there's really one sweet spot in that room. And unlike some of the other Atmos rooms you'll go in, it's very much like the sound comes through and passes by and then is gone, right? That's how, how, how that occurs. So you hear everything from those speakers. You really hear the speaker and the mix as it exists. So that's the brilliance of it. And then the low end, unfortunately, disappears into those corners. <laughs> George builds a room that controls that low frequency in such a way. So if you go and stand in, that, in, in one of the corners, there's like a 15 dB bump in the low end in, uh, in, the, in those corners. But you step out from it, and it's, it's beautiful. It's a great sound, uh, great sound field again. So uh, when, uh, when, when, when George texted me and went, hey, my plans have changed. I'm coming to Nashville. My heart just went, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and uh, so... It was uh, it was the Saturday of Summer Nam and uh, in in Nashville in 2019, 2018 maybe 2018 I don't, I don't know sometime. So I I was finishing up. I was about to leave for Los Angeles. So you know doing a you know uh, housekeeping there before I uh, departed and left Paulie and the team in charge, and um, I, I I went off to lunch. And uh, so I walked up to Brothers Burgers up the street and came back and uh, Bill Schnee was sat in the room with, uh, with, with, with Rolf. And uh, I went, this was the first time I'd ever met Bill. And uh, I went, you know, have you heard the room? And he went, no, I'm waiting for George. I'm like, damn it. Ooh. So now I've got, you know. Tough crowd. <laughs> 45 minutes to kill with, uh, with Rolf uh, and, uh, and, and Bill before George arrives from, uh, from Montreal. And uh, the first question George asks when he comes in is, uh, you know, have, have you hit the room to Bill? He goes, nope, I was waiting for you. So uh, I, I get the room set up as we, we always do. And, uh, uh, you know, reference level, Rocket Man's loaded, right? This is, this is the Dolby Atmos music experience. And uh, <laughs> uh, 
George uh, went, how do I hit play? And I said, so, you know, just hit the space bar, right? So you hit the space bar, first chord kicks in, he immediately slaps, on, uh, slaps it on again. And Bill, who sat right behind George, just turns his head to me and goes, you ain't going to impress us with levels, son. Uh, <laughs> Where's the volume control? So he turns it down and uh, they listen to the thing. And you know, I've, I've, I've sworn George to, to George, I'm not going to share the story, but um, he had a great response to it. Um, and yeah, so it, it really triggered that actually immersive sound design and immersive room design is very different than the, the stereo realm, right? That live end, dead end is useful in some ways, but it's also not in others. The use of this diffusion was clearly eating the signal in, in different ways. So we've learned a lot from that. And um, yeah, the more that I've got into it, the, um, the more I'm seeing consistent speakers all the way around. So it's not, I've got my left and right and they're the bigs. And then I've got you know, small things around me that can work and it's certainly supported, but the more you can get the same cabinet at equidistant uh, layouts in, in, um, in those rooms, the better it will be for your experience of working in, uh, in, in immersive music. Very cool. <laughs> Again, tough crowd. If you can impress those guys, right? he, he did, <laughs> did something right, I'd say. Yeah. All right, Carrie, last question. I mean, you've heard all sorts of great mixes now, not most mixes. What makes a good one? Having fun. You can tell when somebody's had fun with a mix versus had, you know, just been trying to tick the boxes. I, I do get to listen to a wide variety of content. And if what somebody's trying to do is match the stereo and expand it, it's less captivating and less enjoyable um, in many circumstances. Do not want to discredit you know, stereo, right? That is not what I'm saying. Stereo is great, right? Stereo didn't kill mono. Uh, Atmos will not kill stereo. Not trying to do that. It's a different interpretation. And with that, if you follow too closely to your natural instinct uh, as a recording engineer to go, stereo is where, where, where I'm, I'm going to be happy, you'll do yourself a disservice in immersive music creation. The ability to play and to reproduce sound from different parts of the, of the space is really interesting and really fun. And if you play with it, then you're going to create something that's really cool. My favorite example recently is frankly, it's not a, a not not a music genre that I particularly you know enjoy overall, um, but you could tell that it was a fun project and they were exploring. Is actually the FKA Twigs uh, record that just came out, hmm. and Mike Dean mixed that in his brand new room, beautiful Amphion matched all the way around room, very much equidistant. You know, he's uh, he's, he's he's going with it, but. From the first track, you get this like, oh my God, he's doing something different. Right? There's vocals coming from just over your left and right shoulder, and you know he's crafted it so it's like, okay, well the kick has to be at the center of this particular track, but it doesn't always have to be. And so throughout that album, there are moments that pop up and go, 
oh, there's this thing. And that's really interesting is, you know, exploring what not, not what the stereo had to be and then expand it into Atmos, but actually use Atmos in that, uh, in that process. And I think that's true whether you're listening to the Miles Davis kind of blue or the, you know, the, the, the more experimental FK Twigs album. What is the intention of the music and what is the intention of the engineer? And you know, Steve Jenowick and uh, Dave Rideau and, uh, and, and Maurice created something really special at, at, at Capitol for that record, which was the mono is beautiful. The mono is fantastic of that record. Why mess with it? So if you turn off the LCR in that mix, what you get is the sound of Capitol Studio B. Gorgeous. And if you turn off the, the surrounds in that mix, what you get is Miles Davis kind of blue. And that's the intention of that, uh, of that piece is Miles and the band performing this beautiful music. And Atmos should be in service of the music. It should not be a thing that you do and swirl around. My favorite mixes in many circumstances, the ones that don't move at all, or they're not dynamically panning, it's, I'm going to put something there, and then I'm going to put that same thing over here because there's a reason for it. Mm, yeah. Reason for it to be there. I, I, I listen to far, you know, far, far more country than I care to admit, but the, the Nashville community has embraced Atmos in a really interesting way. And I feel like it's because they were also used to putting people together in a room and actually micing it and playing it and capturing the song in that space. And so the intimacy that's in it being enabled, the, um, the functional use of, uh, of Atmos to tell a musical story makes that a captivating mix. All of the other stuff that goes along with it is just you know, is, is beautiful as well. But that's to me what jumps out is when somebody has captured the intention of the song, not the stereo, the song, and puts it into Atmos is is when I think it's really successful. You can find out more about Dolby Production Suite at dolby.com forward slash music forward slash create. That's dolby.com forward slash music forward slash create. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 